here at this youth group, and I grew up on St. Joe Island at the Island Bible Chapel Youth Group, and, and occasionally our youth groups would get together. So um, when we started conceiving of this, and I talked to John about it, we had coffee back in January, I think, um, he was on board right away. And so uh, I'm just thrilled to introduce and welcome to the stage, John Marriott. Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank Brian and the organizers, Bethel and the Island Bible Chapel and all everyone else who's involved, people who are doing the sound in the back and all the people who've done the organizing and providing all the food. And thank you for inviting me here. It's always uh, a, a pleasure to come back to Bethel. Uh, as you've heard a couple times, this is where I grew up. Uh, not particularly, not this particular building, um, but the one on McNabb. And um, uh, it certainly has been really formative in my life. And as you heard, there's a, I, I have written a book. I, I, I feel like I need to give you a disclaimer on the book. It's horribly expensive. Um, but that's because of the exchange rate issue. It's reasonably priced if you buy it in the United States, but when you convert it into Canadian dollars, which I sort of have to do, that's why it's so expensive. So I apologize for the expense of that. But um, there, uh, Bethel and uh, a, a whole lot of people that many of you would know uh, make appearances in the book from Wes to Dave and Shirley Lawrence, Dave Ewell, um, Bethel Bible Chapel. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people in there that you, will, uh, that you will recognize by name or by description. And so uh, it is about why people lose their faith and how sometimes churches unintentionally, unwittingly set people up for a crisis of faith and what we can do to try and avoid that. And so that, that's what that's about. And that's what I'll be speaking on tomorrow is why do people lose their faith and, and uh, what we can do. I, I've spent uh, about the last six years talking with dozens and dozens of people who have lost their faith and reading hundreds of stories of people who have posted either online or in other forums. Um, and, um, and, and so that's what the, the results of the book are and that's what I'll be talking about tomorrow. But tonight... We're going to talk about why I don't always, and that's a really important part of the, the discussion, why I don't always trust my feelings. But before we do that, I want to talk about salmon. A number of years ago, uh, my, my wife and my kids and I went up to uh, Washington State. We went up to Seattle. We were going to a, a Bible camp uh, there. And we went to the Ballard Locks. And the Ballard Locks are similar to the locks that we have here. Um, but um, they, what they have done is... Because the salmon migrate and they go for, when they're going from um, uh, from the ocean, they migrate back to the original lake, either Lake Washington or, or Union Lake, to the freshwater lake where they were originally um, conceived or where they were born. And so these salmon fight their way all the way back through the Pacific after swimming thousands of miles, and then they head inland up through the inland uh, water system where it becomes a freshwater system, and then they head all the way back to Lake Washington. To get there, though, it's really a difficult journey. They have to swim in some cases when salmon spawn and they go back to their, their, um, the, the lake that they're heading to, uh, sometimes thousands of miles, or at least a thousand miles for sure. Sometimes they will climb over 7,000 feet in the swim that gets them from the Pacific Ocean back to the lake that they're heading for. And the entire trip is fraught with danger. Uh, there are natural predators, otters and bears and hawks. There are human predators. And then there is the climb where they have to overcome all kinds of obstacles. If you've seen pictures of the salmon who are, you know, almost like they're flying through the air as they go up all of these waterfalls. And by the time they get back 
to, or to get back to where they are headed, back to their lake, the actual number of, of salmon that make it there is really pretty small, and they're pretty beat up by the time they're there. Uh, they they're, uh, may have like a disfigured jaws, and they might have, uh, you know, they may be uh, emaciated, and, and, and they're really kind of a mess. And then when they finally get there and they mate, they usually die afterwards of exhaustion. And I was watching these salmon at this Ballard Lock because they have this thing called a salmon ladder, which helps the salmon get through the lock because they can't go in where the boats go. So they have built this stair-step kind of ladder for the fish to swim up so they can get where they're going. And it really struck me that the salmon fighting all of these obstacles and swimming upstream is similar, to, I think, in a way to especially young people swimming upstream in a culture that in many ways pushes back against them if they're a person of faith. In the same way that the salmon have lots of obstacles to overcome, and many of them don't make it because they're just exhausted, because they've, they're just tired of fighting. Young people, and even not so young people, live in a culture that is similar to that, in that we live in, a, in, a, in an environment that really is not favorable to being a person of faith or being a follower of Jesus. And it's hard sometimes to maintain your faith in a culture where maybe people think that you're intolerant or maybe people think that you're bigoted or maybe they think that you're narrow-minded. And sometimes that can feed into what we think about what we believe and it can creep into our minds and then we start wondering if what we believe is really true. And so, as a result, faith can be difficult to hold on to and it's not because it's unreasonable, though, or it's not because it lacks uh, evidence. Really, it's because our feelings either undermine what we believe or they might overwhelm what we believe. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is why I don't tr always trust my feelings. Sometimes I trust my feelings, and sometimes maybe some of, some of us may have grown up in, in, in environments where uh, the, the, the feeling part of Christianity was maybe minimized and, and was, we said, you know, it's, it's, all, you know, it's all thinking and, and, and the feelings you can't trust. And I don't think that that's completely true. And so when I say we, I, I don't always trust my feelings, it doesn't mean that I don't sometimes trust them. So what we need to do then is we need to analyze and carefully look at how our feelings play a role in what we believe. Because I'm convinced that when I talk to many people who once identified as Christians, some of these people were pastors, some of them were missionaries, some of them were worship leaders, some of them were full-time camp staff, and as I listen to them talk and I hear their stories more and more and more as, as, they, as they reveal them, what I think I'm hearing is that their intellectual problems with Christianity started at a deeper level than just up here. It started down here. And it didn't just, it, and it was influenced by out here. So the three things that we're going to talk about tonight are what's up here is influenced by what's in here, and what's in here is shaped by what's out here or out there. Right? So those are the three areas that we're going to think about tonight, we're going to focus on. Right? So here's my first suggestion. In some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, our feelings come first and they influence what we will believe. In some cases, our feelings come first and then we look for rationalizations or we look for reasons to support what we, we think or, or, or what we, we want to be true. And number two, 
is that our culture plays a major role in how we feel about certain beliefs. Which raises the question then, what kind of a culture are we living in and how is it shaping and forming our beliefs at kind of a gut level? So why is it that we believe what we do or why is it that we believe the way that we do? And I think that there are three factors. All right, so here they are again. So what we think up here is number one. What we feel in here is number two. And then the forces that are out there is number three. These are the three areas or the three domains or the three uh, factors, I guess, that influence and, and really shape and form what we're willing to believe, what we're willing to accept, and what we're willing to sort of hold on to. And here's my, 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 my theory. What is out there, and by out there I'm talking about the culture that we live in, influences what we feel in here. And what we feel in here influences and shapes what we believe up here. Here are some mistaken views about how we tend to believe about belief. Mistaken view number one, why do we believe what we believe? Well, what's, what can you, what, when you look at this slide, what is the thing that you notice most? The head? Okay, the head is what? The head is huge, right? And the body is small. So what do you think that that indicates when I say, look, this is a mistaken view of why we believe what we believe. We do so because it's all going on in our heads, right? It's all up here. And what I mean by that is that we believe what is rational. We believe things by logically analyzing arguments. And we come to conclusions because we do uh, really well at reasoning and processing information and kind of coming to conclusions that maybe we deduce from certain, um, certain other claims that we hold to or that we might weigh the evidence. And that's why we believe what we believe. It's all going on up here in our heads. And if we just have all the right information, if we just have enough uh, data or, or, or reasons that we will come to a particular conclusion. And I think that that is partly true, but I think that that is an overemphasis of, about, of how we actually go about holding beliefs and how we really develop and, and come to conclusions about things. Here's mistaken view number two. A little hard to see here because of the, the background. But mistaken view number two is you see that the body is really huge, right? So in the first one, it was all what's going on up here. In the second one, it's all kind of what's going on down here. And by down here, I mean kind of your guts, what you, know, what you feel about things. If I say something like, slavery is wrong, you all agree with me, I assume. <laughs> Do you agree with me because you thought about that and you reasoned through that and you processed that and you evaluated that? Or do you just know it on a gut level that slavery is wrong? Right? It's the second one, right? You just know it at a gut level. There are lots of things that we know or we believe or we take at this kind of gut level that are just obvious to us and they're just really clear to us. And, and we don't rationalize about them. We don't deliberate. We don't reason about those kinds of things. But yet those things kind of inform or sometimes are the basis or the cause for maybe what we do ultimately reason about uh, in, in our heads. And some people will say things like, 
All the reasoning that you're doing in your head is really influenced by this down here so much that that's actually controlling everything. So they'll say things like, you know, you were born in a particular time, in a particular culture, you speak a language, you uh, have a history and a background. All of that is why you come to the conclusions that you come to. It's not because you're reasoning really well in your head. It's not because you're really evaluating and, and coming to different conclusions based on the evidence. All the work is being done kind of down here on your gut level. Well, I think that that's a little bit overbalanced as well. So I think that this is a more balanced view. We don't hold beliefs just because of what goes on up here. All right? There's, there are lots of things that do influence why we believe what we do. I would wager that if you lived in the South prior to the Civil War, even if you were a Christian, you might think that slavery was just a natural institution that was common to the state of certain people. And you wouldn't have seen much of a contradiction between that and what you believed from the Bible because you can find verses in the Bible about slavery. So we don't just believe certain things because of our reasoning up here. We really are influenced by, what we, by where we live and what we, you know, our family and our culture. Nor do we hold beliefs just because of what goes on in here. We don't just come to conclusions and we are, our, our thinking isn't overwhelmed by kind of this gut level, uh, intuitive feeling kind of thing. We do say, you know, even though I feel this way, I think this instead. And so what I want to say is maybe more of a combination of both. That how we go about holding our beliefs and why we believe what we do is because we do think. And sometimes we think really well. And sometimes we make mistakes. And we do kind of feel. And both of these influence each other. Sometimes the way I think influences the way I feel, and sometimes the way I feel and the values that I deeply care about influences how I think. The question, though, is which comes first? Now, there is good reason to believe that some, and I want you to see that that's underlined up there because that's really important, that some of our beliefs are deeply rooted in our feelings, and then our head finds reason to support them. Not all of our beliefs are like that, but some are. And the ones that, that are, are, are most connected to that feeling part of us are beliefs about ethics, politics, and some religious positions. If you want to know why, and I see this a lot in the United States, and I don't know exactly the, the situation in Canada today, but as you know, the United States is, in a, is really polarized because half of the country is moving to the right and continues to move to the right on social issues, on economic issues, and the other half continues to move progressively to the left, and it is, they're, they're tearing themselves apart. The common ground in the middle is becoming much less common. Often the people on the left and the people on the right make arguments for why they believe what they believe, and they always refer back to what's going on up here in their heads. This is the right way to have government. This is the right social position, and there's lots of arguments that they give. Same with the other side. But what's really happening is 
both of these arguments that are coming from the left and from the right are really anchored and ground in deeply held values that each one holds that, is, that are very important to them. Here's an example. Over and over again, people who side on the left side or the more progressive side of certain social issues, almost always when they are tested or when they take surveys, have one particular moral value that they hold really strongly above all their other moral values. And that moral value is that you should care for people and that you should not do harm. Close second is that you should be fair and that you should never, uh, that you should treat people equally and never be unfair, right? People who come to conclusions over here on the other side, the more conservative traditional side, they don't score high in holding that as those as their most deeply held values. They have another set of values over here that they hold. Now, both of them think that they're being very rational and their arguments are very good and they're being, it's all going on up here. But really what's happening is they hold deeply held, they have these deeply held values that, that aren't opposite one another, but they're not the same. And if you hold those consistently, you will come to different positions. And so what's going on up here is always being influenced by what's going on down here. And what's going on down here is being influenced by what's going on out there. So if that's the case, if it is the case that there are many things that you believe and many things that I believe, and they're being influenced by how we feel, we need to ask, why do we have these feelings? Where do they come from? Well, some of them are just biological, right? Like you're just born with a particular personality and you have different tastes and you have different likes and you don't know how to explain that. You were just always born that way. Maybe you've always been a strong-willed person or maybe you've always been someone who is, a, someone who is kind of a, a pleaser. Maybe you're a leader. Maybe you're a follower. Uh, you can kind of think of, you know, there are certain foods that maybe you like and you love the taste of and there are lots of other foods that you know that you hate the taste of and that you don't like. Why is that? It's just kind of the way that you were wired. Sort of the same thing when it comes to some of the deeply held values that are really important to us that may not be as important to other people. Why do we hold them? Uh, it's just kind of how we're wired, just kind of how we're born. Parents can see this in children all the time. They kind of just come into the world with a certain personality and a particular bent. It's just how they are. But there's another part that really shapes and influences why we believe what we believe, and that is our experiences. And one of the most significant ones is the culture that we live in. All right? So remember I said that we're talking about these three things. There's why do we believe what we believe? Because of what's going on up here in our heads, our thinking, what's going on down here inside of us, our feeling, and then what's going on around us and outside of us, and that's our culture. Our culture really impacts what's going on in here and how we feel. Let me give you an example. I spoke at a church in, in, in Orange County in California last year. It was around Christmas time and we were talking about the birth of Jesus. And a boy came up to me afterwards in high school and he said, can I ask you a question that has nothing to do with what we've talked about? And I said, sure. And he said, and he raised a particularly... Um, 
controversial social issue. And he said, I know up here that this behavior and practice is wrong, but down here I don't feel like it is. And I know up here that God's word says that this is sin, but down here I I feel like it's just people being who they are. And up here I know that I should be saying that this is wrong, but down here I feel bigoted, I feel intolerant, I feel embarrassed to say that this is what I think. And the reason why he feels that way is because he lives now. If he had lived 60 years ago, this issue would not have been a relevant issue for him and everybody around him in in his culture would have all agreed on it. But why does he feel the way he feels now? Because of what's going on out there influences and shapes his values that are in here and these values shape what he thinks. And let me tell you, if the culture around you squeezes you and shapes you strongly enough into its mold, it will place values deep within you that you will sometimes find intention with what the Bible appears to teach. And when that happens, you need to be aware of that because one of the ways that I, I see people begin to really lose their faith is when they find, when they are morally offended by either God, the Bible, or other Christians, and then they start to say, you know what, maybe this isn't true after all anyway. I feel bigoted. I feel intolerant. I don't like feeling like that. And you know, there's some problems, right? Like, can we even trust the Bible? What about the Trinity and all that kind of stuff? It doesn't really make any sense. And it's easy to get rid of those uncomfortable feelings that well up within you by just kind of saying, oh, if I just, I can get rid of feeling that way and being in sort of a social outcast if I just don't believe it anymore. Because what's going on in here is going to affect what you're thinking up here and what truths you're willing to believe, what claims you're willing to stand for. Right? So how does culture impact our feelings and ultimately our beliefs? Like It does so really subtly. Right now, I think there's about 14 pounds per square inch of atmospheric pressure on all of us right now. And that if it wasn't on us right now, we would all either implode or explode. I'm not sure exactly which one it is. But you don't realize that there's this atmospheric pressure on you, right? But it kind of keeps you and shapes you into, the, allows you to stay in the mold that you are. We don't recognize that gravity is always operating us on us at all times. And it keeps us from floating off you know, into space. We are like fish in a fishbowl. We just don't recognize that we are swimming in culture all the time. And that culture is very subtly, sometimes very overtly and openly, but mostly there is this sort of subtle and sneaky way that culture begins to undermine what we believe. And it does so by influencing us in what we think is reasonable to hold. Now, I want to introduce to you one term tonight, and I was trying to think up a better term for it, but... I can't. And it's this one called plausibility structures. This is what it means. A plausibility structure is a group of people that support some, a, set, a certain set of beliefs. Now, I want you to think in the Middle Ages. Now, I, I, I assume that there's no history scholars here, 
and probably no experts on the Middle Ages, but we all kind of have this idea that in Europe, in the Middle Ages, in the 800s up to the 1500s or so, um, one thing that everybody had in common was the church. Do you know that the, that the, that the, the Catholic church, or not even, yes, it would, be, it would just have been the, the church, the Catholic church at the time, was kind of responsible for holding all of Europe together. They were involved in, uh, you know, teaching in schools. They were involved in, like, the political aspect. People believed that the king had kind of a divine right. They believed that, that God had kind of selected the king. They believed that the world was infused with lots of spirits and lots of enchanted kinds of things. They lived in this cosmos which was ordered and directed by God and every institution supported that belief. And so believing in God and believing in the Bible in the Middle Ages, piece of cake. Actually hard not to believe in God in the Middle Ages because every institution in your culture supported that belief. Not so today, right? This, this kid is, is, is either going to, you know, be the odd guy out because he has this really strong character and he's willing to go against the grain forever and he will be a Montreal Canadian fan. Like, let's say, he's, you know, he moved to, let's say he moved from Quebec and, you know, here he is in Toronto and he's wearing the Canadian's jersey. He, he, will, he will eventually become a Maple Leaf fan. The reason why is because he either has this great intestinal fortitude and will stand up against his culture and his group, or he will eventually kind of come around because he is the odd person out. I remember when I was in elementary school and I was in the fifth grade, we had a very uh, authoritarian principal who would come in and, and he would give us spelling lessons. And I remember at Christmas he came in and he wanted to, uh, he didn't do any spelling. It was the last uh, day before Christmas break and he said, I want to talk to you today. He said, I, I'm really curious. How many of you in here believe in Santa Claus? Go ahead and stand up. I stood up, expecting everybody else to stand up. One other person stood up. <laughs> At that moment, I realized something. And that was that I was really the odd person out. And I started wondering, why doesn't anyone else believe in this? Why am I the only one who does believe in this? And eventually my belief in Santa Claus caved, not because I was given all kinds of information about Santa Claus, not because someone offered me an argument about how he can't really travel around the world to all the houses in one night, or that he can somehow slide down a, a chimney. All of that should have been pretty clear to me by the fifth grade, I would have thought. But I lost my belief in Santa Claus, not because someone presented me with a bunch of rational arguments, but they presented, but what happened was I found that I was in a group of people that didn't support my belief anymore, and I started feeling stupid. We don't let our kids say that word in my house, by the way, but they're not here, right? So then what is our culture like? This is, you know, this is the analogy. Uh, you are me. And the kids in my class are the culture that we live in. We live in a culture that we are very blessed to be a part of. Now, sometimes we hear that, you know, we're under a lot of persecution and that Christians, the whole, whole culture is hostile to Christianity. I just want to stop and say I don't think that that's necessarily the case. When people disagree with us, that does not mean that we're being persecuted. 
When people have a different perspective or when people push back on what we believe, that doesn't mean that we're being persecuted. It just means that, you know, there's disagreement. But of, but of course we see that culture is moving in a way that is in opposition to a, a, a traditional biblical narrative, right? And there is a separation. We are living in what's sometimes called a secular culture, where secular means that all the stuff about society, like the politics and the education system and the legal system, you know what? That has to be value-free. It has to be free of religion. We can't have any religious input there. If you want to be religious, you can kind of go do that at home, but you can't do that in the public sphere. And so we live in this society where standing up and saying, hey, this is who I am and this is what I believe, might actually cause us to feel pretty uncomfortable. And that uncomfortable feeling after a while can cause us to say, do I really believe this stuff? This is from Hugh Hewitt, a, a conservative uh, commentator in the, in the United States. He says, what had in the U.S. long been an alliance between faith and intellect, between reason and revelation, became at first a split, then a big chasm, and today it's a battle. Intellectual elites have never been so far removed from the normal distribution of religious attachment or practices as they are today. And no segment of the intellectual elite is more estranged from faith, and specifically from Christianity, than the media elite. The collection of professionals who write, edit, program, or produce the nation's prestige media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Christian Science Monitor, the Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, Fortune, Forbes, Businessweek, Harper's, Atlantic, The Nation, The New Republic, The Weekly Standard, The New York Review of Books, The American Spectator, CBS, ABC, NBC, CNN, Fox, PBS, and the major movie studios. Hugh Hewitt says, and he was an insider in, in, in a number of these institutions. He says, look, these are the cultural elites. These are the people who are shaping and writing kind of the official narrative. They're the ones who are telling you what is normal behavior and what is acceptable and how you should live and what you should think and what you should tolerate and, and how you should be accepting of all kinds of different things. He says, they, they have never been farther away from a traditional Christian perspective than they are today. This next slide, and I apologize for the length of these quotes, but this next slide is from a professor. His name is Robert Worthnow, and he, has he wrote a book, and it was called The God Problem. And the God Problem is, how can you be an intellectual, educated, reflective person in the 21st century and, and still believe in God? He says this, an educated person should understand that the scriptures were not really divinely inspired, that sacred texts contain errors, and that there are naturalistic explanations for religion itself. People living centuries ago may have read the biblical story about the world being created in seven days and had little trouble believing that this really happened in space and time. There may have, they may have even heard that God created Adam and Eve about 6,000 years ago and figured it was exactly when it happened. A person nowadays with no education might have heard these yarns from a family member and had no reason to question them. A child could learn the story of Noah's Ark in Sunday school and think how nice it was that all the animals were saved from the flood, but educated people should have reasons to question all of this. The further you go in academia, the further you go in your career, the harder it will be to identify as a believer because that world is progressively more secular and there's less and less space for God in those worlds. And that may make you feel pretty uncomfortable. So in summary, what we believe up here is directly tied to how we feel in here. What we feel in here is shaped by our experience in, in our culture. 
And our culture is really secular, which means this worldly. And it's almost like a practical atheism. God plays almost no role in our culture. I'm not sure, I meant to look this up, and maybe someone can share it with me afterwards, but I know that, in, that at least a couple years ago, in the province of Quebec, they actually had a, they, they passed a law that you could not wear religious uh, headscarf, you could not wear religious jewelry if you were working for the province because the province and the church have nothing in common. They can't have anything to do with one another. So if you are sensitive to the influence of our culture, it's going to cause you maybe to feel things like this. Embarrassed because culture says belief in God is unreasonable. We're going to talk about this tomorrow, but everybody needs to stop and think about this for a minute. We, we believe a book that tells us a lot of fantastic things that never seem to happen today. We believe in a book that came from a really long time ago where people believed in things that probably we don't think happen today. We, we believe that there was a God who came into the world and he died and he actually came back from the dead and that people walked on water. Those things don't happen in our normal everyday experience. And so, is it really reasonable to believe in God? That's a really important question and one that we'll talk about this week. You might feel dumb because culture says the Bible is for children and not educated people. Isn't it kind of obvious that this is kind of on the same level as all the other mythological stories that you don't believe in? Zeus, Apollo. Is there any good reason to believe that the Bible is reliable? Is there anything that kind of confirms the text of the scriptures? Do we have any good reason to believe what we believe? Or is it just kind of wishful thinking? We might even feel shame because culture says Christianity is narrow-minded and judgmental. Between 16 and 29-year-olds of those people who are outside of the Christian faith, the Barna Research Group did a, did a study several years ago. You know what the number one attribute that they ascribed to conservative evangelical Christians, like those of us in this room tonight? 91% of those surveyed said that anti-homosexual applies to us all the time. I think it was 87% said that all the time the word hypocritical applies to us. 85, I think, was judgmental, boring, irrelevant. These are all the adjectives that the contemporary 16 to 29 year old person ascribes to Christianity. And so if you know that, you might even feel a little bit shamed because you think like, yeah, I feel like I'm a narrow-minded, judgmental bigot. You might even feel guilty because culture says biblical morality is intolerant. And what are you supposed to do with that? Because you're supposed to be a follower of Jesus and you're supposed to be faithful to his word. Culture really informs and shapes how we feel in here. And how we feel in here impacts how we think up here. And so we really need to understand our culture and we need to be aware of what's happening inside. So here's what you need to know. You need to know, in, by the way, and this is in closing, you need to know this. You need to know that what seems reasonable is often kind of relative to the context that you're living in. I understand that if you go to UCLA or you go to University of Waterloo and you go to University of Toronto and you stand up in your class and you say, I think that God created the world in six literal days and they were 24-hour periods and I think that there was a global flood 
people will think that you are foolish, that you are unreasonable, irrational. But what you need to know is that reason is often relative kind of to the culture that you live in. Truth is not, but what seems reasonable depends on where you are. People who lived prior to Christopher Columbus thought the earth was flat. They had good reason for thinking it was flat. They were very reasonable. They were wrong. But it looked flat as far as they could tell. All of the evidence was that it was flat. People believed that the earth was at the center of the galaxy and that the stars and the planets and the sun revolved around it. Why? Because that's the way that it looked. They were wrong, but they were reasonable. And so even though you might stand outside of culture today in some of the beliefs that you hold, you need to know that our culture is not an unbiased, not an objective, or not a neutral space. It has a whole bunch of beliefs that kind of hold it up. And many of those are false. Here's the last thing that you need to know. You need a standard by which to measure culture. And one that tells us if our feelings and beliefs are in accordance with the truth. And that's why we're having this conference this week. We want to know, is the Bible, when it claims to be the standard for which we judge whether something is true or false, is it a reliable standard? And when the culture squeezes me and presses in on me and makes me feel these things like I'm foolish or that I'm intolerant or that I'm narrow-minded, I need some kind of a standard that I can look to and say, Am I being this way? Is the culture right? Or is the culture wrong? And so you need something outside of the culture to do that. We as Christians think that's the Bible. The question is, are there good reasons to think that the Bible can do the job? And I think that it can. In the 19, uh, December 1995 edition of the Emmaus Journal, Dave McLeod, who's a professor wrote about Romans chapter 12, verse 2. If you know Romans chapter 12, verse 1, you know that Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, because of the mercies of God, submit yourself to God. And, in chapter, and then in verse 2, he goes on and says, And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the world. And Dave McLeod used this illustration to explain what being conformed to the world is and the shape that it has. And, that, and I want to end with thinking about this tonight. I can't remember which Ming dynasty it was, but the emperor of China, hundreds of years ago, according to Dave McLeod, used to, for his own enjoyment and pleasure of his court, take small children, babies when they were old enough, and they would put them in vases or vases, however you want to pronounce them. And they would poke holes in the side and they would poke holes in the, in the bottom for the legs and for the arms and the head would come out the top of the vase. And then they would feed the children. And they would lay them down at night in these vases and vases and then they would get, tip them up the next day and they would grow inside of those vases. And as they would grow, they would be squeezed and molded into the shape of the vase. And then when they were too big and it was obvious that they couldn't live in the vase anymore, they would break the vase open and they would have in the court all of these children running around, these sort of this, these deformed little children running around for the pleasure of the court. And McLeod's purpose in sharing that story is, he says, you know, we can be misshapen as well. We can be squeezed into the world's mold. 
Our culture squeezes us and it shapes us and it forms us and it fills us with feelings and values and those in turn impact the way that we think. And sometimes if we're not careful, they can cause us to have a serious crisis of faith. And so I want to encourage you this week, this weekend, to really think well about the Bible and whether or not it can serve as this criterion, as this standard to evaluate culture. Because we don't want to be like those kids and be squeezed into this sort of deformed mold of what it really means to be a flourishing human being. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my friends tonight as we talked about some really abstract things. But I I hope that they are encouraged and realize that maybe some of the things they feel aren't because they're good reasons, but just because they live where they live and because they are influenced by a media that influences them. And Lord, would you encourage them to know that even though sometimes we feel like we're outside of culture and that we may feel foolish intellectually or narrow and intolerant morally, that you really do love people and that you've given us good reason to believe your word. And may we be encouraged by that this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, John. I'm trying to think of, of uh, how to give away some free stuff. We did loud last time. And uh, so what I thought we would do this time is um, what I want to do, and I know it's kind of crowded in here, and so this might be a little dangerous. Is that okay? Yes, okay, okay. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to come down to about this level. No, about this level, I think, right here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have everybody stand up. Just stand up where you are. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call Jeremy up and just a minute do some more entertainment. But just, um, we're going to give out some, uh, some more free stuff here. And... Um, Uh, it's going to be the person, I'm going to start on this side of the room first, and we're going to see who jumps the highest, okay? So, yeah, on the count of three, now don't break anything. I, well, I, I kind of meant, like, don't break anything in the church, but don't break anything in your body either, just to clarify. So here we go. Um, we're going to see, all right, so, and I, I am the judge here, so we're going to see a count of three. No, 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 I already see the cheaters. I see them getting their feet up. No, you cannot, you cannot use the chair to propel you forward. Okay, this, is, this is straight vertical leap here. No, you can't use some way. Manitoulin, amen. You're just trying to find some way. Okay, here we go. Ready? Count of three. I'll go one, two, three, jump. When I say jump, you jump. Here we go. Ready? One, two, three, jump. Okay. I saw, I saw two people right at the back. Yeah, come on up. Come on up. All right. I'm assuming your name is Owen. Nicely done. There you go. Well done. And uh, Daniel, I saw Daniel was about the tallest over here. Come on up. 